MSW Media. So, Renato, now that Judge Chutkin has thrown Trump's absolute immunity claim out the window, does this mean that he'll be going to trial in March? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So we had a double whammy last week, or a double bench slap, as... As I like like to say. So in the same day, basically, the Trump's claim of absolute immunity was rejected both by the D.C. Court of Appeals with regard to the civil lawsuits that have been filed against him for January 6th about injuries that resulted from the riots and by the district court, Judge Tanya Chutkin, hours later in his criminal case for January 6th. And this was kind of, you know, his big claim, uh, and we can unpack it, that pretty much was trying to argue that if the president does it, it's it's legal. To paraphrase Richard Nixon. (laughs) To paraphrase Richard Nixon, Um, yes. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess we can unpack what you said. I I thought um, both of the opinions, I thought were very well written. And Judge Chutkins definitely flowed from the D.C. Circuit's uh, reasoning. Um, But they are slightly different, right? So both Trump's claim was trying to utilize a Nixon-era Supreme Court precedent that stated it was uh, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, uh, which was brought by an employee whose position, government employee whose position was terminated after he gave unfavorable testimony to Congress, I guess, about Nixon. And he claimed, I guess, that he was being retaliated against or something like that. And basically the court in that case says that the president is immune from civil suits for acts that he undertakes that are within the outer perimeter of his presidential duties. Um, And that, you know, those presidential duties don't have to necessarily be uh, what is only explicitly laid out in Article 2, but things that are a natural extension of them or that fall into kind of a I guess, a reasonable gray zone um, of conduct, right, that would come. And and I think the, the policy reason behind this is that presidents make tons of decisions and you don't want them to be constrained in making decisions because they are afraid that if they do what is best in their opinion, for the country, in the exercise of the presidential duties, that as soon as they leave office, they're going to be faced with a flood of lawsuits. I mean, I think it was kind of a, a public policy reasoning is is really what this is coming comes down to. Right. I mean, kind of, you kind of have to have that. You don't want a situation where the president is trying to decide whether to bomb some 
missile site and is thinking about potential lawsuit, right? He has to wheel in his lawyers or worry about, you know, potential civil suits. So in that context, it, it makes a perfect sense, I would say, in that particular context. Yes. And but the D.C. Circuit then says what Trump was doing on January 6th was not in the outer perimeter of his presidential duties. This was clearly activity that he was undertaking in his personal capacity, like running for re-election. And therefore, it was not entitled to get the kind of immunity that the court articulated in Nixon versus Fitzgerald. That's right. Um, and, and I think you can understand why that's the case as well, because ultimately, at the end of the day, what Donald Trump is was doing, or at least what he's alleged to be doing in these civil complaints, is that he's essentially conspiring to undermine the operations of the United States government and the peaceful transfer of power in the United States government. Now, of course, Trump's going to have his own version of that, right, where he's just giving a peaceful speech and, you know, presidents all the time give speeches about all sorts of things and they should be immunized uh, for that. Like, let's say the challenger challenger blows up uh, and Reagan gives a speech, uh, but obviously it's a very different circumstance um, and uh, it's understandable that D.C. Circuit uh, came to where they're at. Right. And. I would say that at least in that case, he was trying to cite a precedent that at least was in the general context, the similar context, because it was he was trying to apply um, a doctrine that was promulgated in the course of a civil case in the course of another civil case that was being brought against him. And the question was whether, you know, these actions fell within this outer perimeter. Now, in the January 6th criminal case, what he was doing was trying to extrapolate from that same case, that Nixon versus Fitzgerald, but into the criminal context. So basically, he was making the same argument, but then also saying, if the, the president is immune from criminal liability for acts that are undertaken, um, and he argued that his actions were in this outer perimeter of his presidential duties. But again, this was taking even a step further by saying, and you can't even prosecute me criminally. Right. Which is obviously a, a bridge the far, much further, right? Uh, I, I, I was going to use the analogy, a bridge too far. Um, but yes, uh, and Tanya Chutkin, I think very... Um, um, Deftly, you gave it the yeah. Deftly gave it the back of her hand, eloquently. So to speak, right? Yeah, she was yeah. basically like talk to the hand. Um, so you know, I think she had a, she had many different good points, and I summarized some the main ones that I that stood out to me um, as being very well stated and persuasive in my Substack. Um, the first one was kind of about the extension of the Nixon versus Fitzgerald um, doctrine into the criminal realm. And what she says is that policy reason that we talked about, the um, prospect of chilling the president in the exercise of his official duties out of fear of future liability, was not really something that would happen in the criminal context. Um, so she, she states, for example, 
it's not like in the civil context where you, you know, you said uh, dropping a bomb somewhere, right? Like this is, you know, your mental state is I'm, you know, trying to exercise my war powers and, you know, you, you're not really no, understanding or maybe thinking about the consequences of that that might potentially create civil liability. What she says is in the criminal context, you have to have like a, a state of mind. There is a certain amount of intentionality that is required to even to be a crime. You have to have a, a mens rea, right? A particular state of mind for it to be a crime um, in addition to the action that you do. And this is not something that would just happen um, you know, inadvertently or, you know, just casually in the exercise of, of a, a president in, in the exercise of his duties. So that, you know, there's no real prospect that being held criminally liable would realistically chill a president in doing anything that was actually within the scope of his presidential duties. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's uh, it is persuasive. I'll say if I was and I don't represent Trump, not interested, but if I was on the other side of that, right, if I was on the uh, Trump lawyer, I would say, well, look, you can imagine situations where a president, let's say it's Waco or something, you know, a president is making decisions about that are controversial um, and that you could, you know, you could imagine a situation where a runaway local prosecutor is like, hey, I'm going to bring charges because of this wrongful, you know, these, these sort of wrongful actions that, that were, that were, uh, ordered by the president where the president's just trying to keep people safe. Um, but I, I think as a, it's fair to say um, that the, 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 when we're talking about you, you, you called it, I think earlier, Asha policy argument and the policy mm -hmm. arguments really uh, they're, they're, they weigh differently in these two circumstances because in civil cases, it's very easy to imagine civil lawsuits being filed by all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons related to all sorts of things. And it's part of, one of the reasons why there's so many lawyers around um, is that they uh, not only are needed to defend those suits, but to dream them up. But in the criminal context, it's, it's much more the idea that a president would be charged, um, particularly while in office, but even shortly thereafter, um, it's it's much more remote. In fact, it's never happened in our history until Donald Trump became president. Yeah, and I think that's fair what you said about the counter arguments. I'm trying to think of a hypothetical, which I think could be, for example, say a 9-11 type scenario, mm -hmm. right? You have hijackers who are, are commandeered a plane and they are, you know, flying it directly to the White House. Um, the president decides to have... Um, our military fighter jets shoot it down, right? Can, would that be murder? Could he be prosecuted for murder? I mean, I think that's probably like the closest you could get to a hypothetical where criminal liability could be like um, contemplated. But even then, right, think about what you'd have to prove for the mental state, right? And right. You, you would never be able to show that the president was did that in order to kill the people on the plane, as opposed to to prevent you know something else. My point is that even there, I think it would be a complex case. And as you said, it would be so rare. And what she also says is, and by the way, you know, at the end of the day, um, if charges were brought, it could be brought by one entity. She's talking only in the federal context right now. It would be brought by the Department of Justice. It's not like the civil context where you can be sued by countless number of people. Um, and you know, what she says is that on top of that, there are so many 
safeguards in our criminal justice system to protect the defendant. So, you know, in that case, in the case of like shooting down the airliner, you know, you would need an attorney general who decides that this is, you know, a murder case and we're going to actually like pursue a, a, a prosecution. Then, you know, you would need a grand jury to indict th this person. Then you need to go through a trial. You need to convince a jury. And so what she says is those same policy concerns where, you know, you have a president leave office and it's just going to be, you know, overrun with, um, you know, these being tied up in court is is simply not a realistic prospect in the criminal context. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the work that's being done there is by saying it's federal and not state. I mean, I think we can imagine local prosecutors in West Virginia or Mississippi deciding that prosecuting Joe Biden would be good for their electoral prospects or whatever they're trying to accomplish, their Fox News appearances, Newsmax appearances, and deciding that that's a good idea. Um, I, I will say that I, uh, while courts often talk about all the rights and protections that are afforded defendants, and there are, and they are important, uh, the, the government has a tremendous amount of weight and the balance is much, uh, much more stacked against defendants than you might imagine. But yes, in the context of a president and a former president, those are those the 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 scales are balanced uh, differently, shall we say, as many of our uh, listeners uh, to their chagrin uh, at times. Uh, so I, I agree with that, and I, like I said, I, I think the, the 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 thing with Trump and these arguments is they're not being made in a manner that is um, where they're new. There's a lot of nuance, or they're trying to present sort of. Um, outer limits because they want, they need to get to where they want to go. They need such broad sweeping immunity that they're not making it. They're not making these challenging decisions for, for judge Chutkin, in my opinion. Right. Um, she then goes on to balance uh, against, you know, the, the, the policy um, issue that we we just talked about the public's interest in allowing the criminal prosecution and what she says is the public interest in seeing the commission of a crime be you know prosecuted is significant and here she actually invokes another nixon era case united states versus nixon um and she makes here this is something that I had not thought about, but I think it's a really good one it is a separation of powers argument where she says look, this conduct is so reprehensible that Congress decided to criminalize it. You know, they didn't, they didn't just make only civil liability. They, they said that doing this is a crime. You know, conspiring to deprive people of rights is a crime. Obstructing Congress is a crime. Um, and so she said, creating some kind of absolute immunity for the president would impinge on separation of powers, which is you know, Congress's prerogative to make laws, criminalize laws, the judiciary's uh, prerogative, uh, duty to, uh, you know, um, enforce those or to, I guess, adjudicate those laws in the administration of justice. Um, so I thought the separation of powers argument was um, pretty persuasive. And then in any case, by the by, she says, and none of this was in the outer perimeter of your presidential duties anyway, um, because this was all happening in your personal capacity. And what I love to hear is she actually cites to Trump's own filing in the Supreme Court in the Pennsylvania case, where it says, like in the opening paragraph, 
I'm filing this in my personal capacity. So basically she is like, there you go. Which is it, right? Yeah, pick a side. Yeah, which is it? Yeah. So I thought I thought all of that was good. And I don't know that we need to go into some of his more specious claims, which were things like, you know, that his acquittal during impeachment meant that he couldn't be criminally indicted because of the language of the Constitution and double jeopardy. It was all very, to me, those seem like Mickey Mouse arguments. I mean, I can see why his lawyers were making them, but like, yeah, we disagreed about those in the past. I mean, I I will say just as somebody practices federal criminal law a lot, um, those are, it's to have an actual novel argument that there's no existing law on, uh, is, is generally fantastic for the defendant, but I get your point. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, they're not compelling when you hear them and when you hear them described, but I can understand why he's making them. There's no law on the point, so they're totally novel. Well, let, but let's just, okay, let me go ahead and explain the-, the Uh-oh, the uh-oh, I, I got her worked one. up, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, well, the impeachment one was so dumb. It was <laughs> that because the impeachment clause says that, um, you know, in the case of being convicted in an impeachment proceeding, impeachment trial, um, the punishment can go no farther than- removal from office and um, uh, I'm sorry, a prohibition from holding public office. In other words, those are the two penalties. However, that doesn't preclude being prosecuted. In right. other, and, and what they say is they're, they're trying to kind of re- like read some corollary into that by saying, so if you're not removed or you know, there's no penalty, you're not convicted, then you can't be prosecuted. Right, it's like double jeopardy. After impeach, It's like, well, the double jeopardy argument is separate. They were actually making a textual argument, oh. but it, it's, a, it's a reading, it's it's kind of a, like a, it was just legal sophistry. It was like reading kind of, it's like, it's like playing a record backwards to hear, you know, the devil talking or something oh like God. that. Like it made no sense. You know, <laughs> I, I just, it, it was, it, it, sound, it was like a, it was a smart argument for dumb people. Yeah. It's one of these things. I hear what you're saying. It's just that I'll just say this as somebody who's been in and around the criminal justice system for decades now. So many of the arguments made by defendants are much worse than that. Like there's no, uh, there's not sufficient evidence of my conviction, even though I confessed. And the standard of review is such that like no rational juror could have uh, found me guilty. You know, those sort of things here. It's like de novo review. <laughs> there's like no, there's no presumption that, that he's wrong. There's no law on the point. It's like totally novel. At least it's, there's like a plausible idea that this could be an argument, but I hear what you're saying. I, I, I'm just trying to give our listeners the perspective. Like if it was an SAT reading comprehension pack- passage, his interpretation of that passage okay. would be wrong. I, I like hear. it just was not a logical inference that you could make from the reading of the of that particular clause. You know, maybe the double jeopardy thing. I don't know, but like that particular one. Um, and she she goes through and she parses it. She says, "No, right. like, let's look at the seriously. structure of this sentence here and what how it how it works." Yeah. Anyway, so um, but here's what here's the interesting uh, thing is that it, this is not necessarily the end of the story. Um, 
which is that, um, I mean, procedurally, there's a few, a few more steps, right? And um, one is that he can appeal this ruling. Um, he's probably not, given the DC Circuit's ruling in the civil case, I mean, it, it's going to be a non-starter there, but then he can kick it up to the Supreme Court. That's right. And I'll just say one thing, I'll just take a step back. I mean, I'm going back and forth with you about some of the details, but just to take a step back here for a minute, it's apparent to me that Judge Chutkin understood how weighty her rulings were here. I think she understood that these rulings would ultimately be reviewed, not just by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, but by the United States Supreme Court. And they'd be the, the most important decisions that she would make in her career. So I, I, it was apparent to me from reading them, it was apparent how much care that she put into them. Mm -hmm. and, I agree. And so that's one thing I'll just say. The second is to not take another step back. You know, typically speaking, if you have a motion to dismiss, you know, usually what's called an interlocutory appeal, an appeal before the case is over is not favored and is rarely uh, unavailable to a defendant in a criminal case. Typically, you make a motion to dismiss, it's denied, and okay, now you got to go to trial. <laughs> like, uh, and that's basically the only lever, the only leverage, I should say, that the defense has is saying, hey, we're going to go to trial and win. Um, in this case, though, essentially the arguments that Trump's making not only are novel, but they're ones that would essentially mean that he wouldn't, if he's right, he wouldn't be standing trial at all. Um, and, and so I, I think they're in there and given all the circumstances, I think it's, it, there's a reasonable chance that these are going to be, there will be an interlocutory appeal. And I'll go a step further and say, I think that's why he made them. I think the real mm -hmm. goal here was not that. No, I don't think they had any hope that Tanya Chutkin was going to agree with them for sure. And I think they're even uh, in front of the Supreme court, I bet that his team is telling him that our chances are uphill at best. But I think the goal here is to try to run out some clock and get this in front of the Supreme Court because it wouldn't be a shocker for the Supreme Court to ultimately take this and potentially create enough delay that it could impact the timing of this this trial past the you not only past the march but potentially past the election. I mean, they can they can help him kick the can. Um, I'm not sure on the merits what they would do with it though. Um, when, one interesting thing is that. You know, Chuckin's opinion repeatedly cites to the Clinton v. Jones case, which talks about how purely private conduct is basically fair game for civil liability and definitely for for criminal liability. Um, guess who was, you know, a major lawyer down if, when we were looking at the whole Clinton Jones thing? Judge uh, Justice Kavanaugh. I would have to say it would Indeed. be so rich for him to suddenly find that all of these things are, you know, in the outer perimeter when they conveniently were not 21 years ago. Oh, I agree. I think he's going to lose in the Supreme Court on these on these points. I think the question is just I mean, the, well, I think there's two questions. One, will he get any votes? What votes will he get? Thomas. Will he get Alito and Thomas and no others? Right. But secondly, will they work with him on the timing? In other words, you can imagine a sort of you know, Pyrrhic victory for, for Jack Smith and team or the United States of America, let's put it this way, since that, that's who they represent, the United States, uh, you know, where the United States wins its point, 
in court because they prevailed the Supreme Court. It. But it's too late. Yes. Yeah. And that's why it is, my friends, is it is complicated. Yes. When is it too late? I guess that's another question that I haven't really heard anyone talk with specificity about because you know, the DOJ's 90-day rule is really about the investigative phase, I think. Yeah, when right? charges Taking are Taking overt steps. Yeah. But in a case like this where it's already rolling through the justice system, do you think they have until January 2024? Boy, I mean, I have to say, Asha, this is totally, I mean, just so everyone listening understands, totally unprecedented. There's no law on this. There's no right answer here where, and what I mean by right answer, there may be a right answer in terms of what's the the right thing to do, but I mean, what, there's no answer that we could look up in some book that's going to tell you the answer to this. And I think the challenge here is that having a criminal trial, uh, let's say two months before the election, if Trump is in fact the Republican nominee, um, is going to be a, a total circus and incredibly disruptive, right? Where, you know, you've got Biden going from battleground state to battleground state at rallies and Trump, you know, on trial and either deciding I'm going to skip the trial because I need to run for president and that this is a sham. And that's what he tells his supporters or, and they're trying to, they're trying to imprison me. So I don't, so I can't be your choice. Or he's sitting there in trial and he argues that, you know, uses that as sort of a prop to say, they're trying to silence me. They're trying to put me away. So you can't vote for me. Don't listen to them. It just, it feeds into his BS about the whole system being against him and is going to work to subvert public confidence in our judicial system and our criminal justice system, which is just absolutely unfortunate. Unfortunately, it's, you know, a Scylla and Charybdis kind of situation because, you know, the other option is what do you do? Just like put it off and then what if he wins and what happens then? I mean, in other words, if you're really treating him like any other person, then I would say the argument is that you simply proceed. And I mean, it's his choice to run for president, you know? There's a very good chance, I'd say one way or the other, that this proceeds quickly enough that there can be a trial in a reasonable amount of time before the election. And if it, but if that is not the case, if we're sitting here in June or July and we're trying to figure out, can we rush in a trial before the election? I really think that Merrick Garland's decision-making in the early years of the Biden presidency. I was yeah. just about to say this. Faithful. It will be, I mean, that will have been a fateful yeah. decision. Absolutely faithful. To basically sit on his ass for 18 months. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It really makes me mad because I was convinced that they were investigating and during that whole time, I was like, oh, that has to be investigated. Like, there was a crime committed, like, literally in front of millions of people on television. Um, and to kind of come to the realization a year and a half later that, nope, they hadn't been investigating or doing anything. Um, when did he appoint Jack Smith? Was it December of last yeah, year? Yeah, something around the time. It was really focused on Mar-a-Lago, right? It was December yeah. of last year. He, yeah, it, December of last year. And just think about how quickly he brought those charges. Imagine if Merrick Garland had appointed a special counsel immediately after he had been confirmed and just said. And, and it wasn't a crazy idea. It was not a crazy idea. We were talking about this. You and I were tweeting about this a, all the time. 
I wrote a column in Politico before Biden was inaugurated saying the right choice for Biden is to appoint a special counsel to go through all the Trump stuff, everything that happened that we knew about at the time, this before January 6th happened, saying, go through the Mueller report, go through all this Hatch Act stuff, go through everything, have a special counsel come out with a report and say, here's everything that Trump did during his presidency, and here's why I'm not prosecuting almost all of it. And if he is prosecuting or she's prosecuting anything, she can say, you know, I'm prosecuting this one piece of what he did, and here's why. And that's what should have happened from day one. They should have had a special counsel taking a look at what happened during the Trump presidency. So, yeah, it's very, very, very hard. Yeah. And Merrick Garland was not the one who saved the day. It was Liz Cheney. Like, imagine if you could go back in time to your, like, you know, 2005 self and be like, <laughs> Liz, Liz Cheney is going to be the one trying to save democracy in 19 years. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, I know. Um, anyway. Crazy. It's it's just insane. I can't. I yeah. can't deal. Well, at the time, Donald Trump was like trying to hawk like Trump stakes on Celebrity Apprentice, so that would have really surprised. I mean, tell me that that would have really surprised me. Okay, I mean, his big choice was like, you know, am I going to fire um, Meatloaf or am I going to fire, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever? I, for, I forget who he had. It was just like it was absurd, right? It was like a Gary Busey or something. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was like. What a show. Yeah. I mean, that's what's where Trump was. And now here he is trying literally inciting people to attack our capital and destroy uh destroy the um peaceful transfer of power and everything else. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Mueller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. So it's Tuesday, uh, the 5th. We just had some breaking news. I was on CNN like a half hour before we started recording uh, where Jack Smith has sort of showed some of his cards regarding the evidence that he's going to be putting forward to trial. I like it when Jack Smith shows his cards. Well, it's interesting when things, you know, (laughs) this is where stuff 
or I, I'm told I can swear in this podcast. It's starting to get real, okay? Because you you know you're getting close to a criminal trial where the prosecution is starting to say, okay, here's what our evidence is going to look like. And w- what Jack Smith is saying now is, look, we're going to introduce evidence. Um, a, one big piece is we're going to introduce evidence that Trump um, is essentially praising and supporting and lifting up the insurrectionists after January 6th. Um, essentially, you know, he's calling in patriots. He's suggesting he's going to pardon them and things along those, those lines. Very interesting. Ordinarily, by the way, just, just to make sure our listeners understand, that would ordinarily be irrelevant under the federal rules of evidence. In other words, usually if you commit a crime, let's say I shoot somebody, <laughs> and then you're like, well, I want to introduce all this, this evidence of what, you know, what he did and said much later. Usually it's like, well, why does that matter, right? What matters is what you're doing and the crime that occurred in that day. But of course, Trump's defense here is going to be, I had nothing. Uh, I I had no idea these people were going to attack the Capitol. I was just giving a speech and giving my thoughts and my ideas, my my you know political views or my views on on this uh, what was going on at the Capitol. I was shocked and abhorred that people were going to go and attack police officers. But of course, his later statements reveal his intent and suggest that in fact he was conspiring with those people. That's going to be Jack Smith's argument. I think is one that. Is being it's it's evidence that's being offered in large part because of the potential defense that Jack Smith anticipates Trump that Trump is going to have a trial. Yeah, that he did not intend for that to have like that his state of mind was not again going back to that criminal state of mind. And it mirrors, I think, the argument that the House lawyers made in the impeachment proceedings where they pointed to his action, to Trump's actions after the insurrection started as evidence of, you know, him wanting to see that violence. And of course, they were working on a much short, you know, they didn't have as much evidence at that time. I'm sure um, Jack Smith has more. And also, he is, by the way, looking, going to be bringing in, it sounds like stuff from before January 6th. Like he's going to bring in the statement from the 2020 presidential debate where he tells the proud, he says, you know, I'm telling the proud boys to stand back and stand by. Um, So as I think kind of building this picture that he, he was all, he was kind of already thinking about this and 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 there's also i'm sure um i i know that there is some timing with regard to his be there and be wild tweet in december and some of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes with you know sydney powell and all of them when they decided that they were going to when he rejects other the, the more reasonable people, I use that term loosely, around him who say, look, it's over, and he says no and decides to go with the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs people, um, and it, it is mirrored in what he says publicly to his followers. Yeah. No, I, I think – so I think just in terms of the chances of this evidence getting admitted, I, I think Judge Shutkin's going to let it in. And so the usual – I really think the only issue here is this is not – these aren't like wrongful acts in the sense that expressing an opinion that these people are patriots is not in and of itself like a crime or something like that. And so the question of whether this gets in – I mean these are statements by Trump, so they're generally going to be admissible um, as long as they're relevant – um, which they, I've explained to you why the, the prosecution believes they're relevant. 
And so then the only issue is, are they unfairly prejudicial? And what, um, and in, is the, uh, is the probative value of those statements substantially outweighed by the un, by unfair prejudice? And I say unfairly prejudicial. It's a it's a word that often gets dropped out um, when people are arguing about these evidentiary points. But the reason I say that is that most probative evidence is prejudicial in some regard. I mean, in other words, it's not going to make Trump look good that he's calling these people who are like beating cops upside the head as patriots and you know praising them and offering to pardon them or suggesting he's going to pardon them. But the question is whether it's unfair, um, prejudice, and I don't expect that uh, Judge Shutkin is going to find that. She might give some instruction um, to caution the jury about how they're supposed to use this evidence, but I expect it's going to come in. I expect it's going to be very powerful um, because it really boxes him in. I mean, I think Trump, in many ways, um, he, you know, we've talked in prior episodes, Asha, about how he makes his attorney's life more difficult. You know, one of the challenges, and I'll say this as somebody who has you know, after a, a lengthy career as a federal prosecutor, I've spent many years as a criminal defense attorney. One of the challenges is what I'll call client management. And, um, you, you know, you have clients who want to do crazy things. That's how they ended up charged with crimes. And Trump is really making his attorney's lives very difficult here because these statements, which I understand have some value to him politically, um, make it very, very hard for them to come out and try to say like, he had no idea. He's so shocked. He's so abhorred, right? If you were somebody who's like, I'm abhorred by what happened here. That's how so many of the Republican congressmen and Republican senators, that's their statement. Like, oh, you know, we're shocked that this happened. Well, like he he can't do that. Yeah. And just, you know, this is, I, I think that it is definitely relevant for Jack Smith because it goes to the conspiracy, mm-hmm. right? The conspiracy against rights is about depriving people in the exercise exercise of their rights through intimidation and violence. And, you know, if after the fact you're like, good job, thanks for doing that, <laughs> you know, um, it's so unfair that you got prosecuted. Then when they engaged in that very violence and intimidation, um, it certainly seems like a post hoc endorsement of it. So, I mean, it's hard to then, you know, make the argument that it it was an unintended consequence of of what you wanted. Indeed, it may, it really box out some boxes out some of his key defense arguments, and so that's often why the prosecution introduces evidence. They try to anticipate defense arguments. They try to box them out. Um, I think they are putting Trump's team in a tough spot. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. So before we go, um, we're... A week out, 
after Thanksgiving, we're heading into the holidays, and it's that time of year. It's getting dark at here, literally at 4.30, which makes me want to go home and go to sleep. Harder to be active. And I don't know about you, but I'm... The struggle is real. The struggle is... With the, okay. With the yeah, wedding. I was going to say, well, we, just, we have to be specific because there are many struggles when it comes to uh, Christmas. <laughs> no, I seriously, Renato, I feel like a busted can Uh-oh. of biscuit dough. Uh-oh. You know, when you open a can, it's like... <laughs> It like kind yes. of like spills out. Like that's what I oh feel like right now. Well, I, I I have been as you know I've been uh, under the weather uh, for the last week, so I'm I am I I'm a little bit sanitary, and I've been um, uh, not eating as well because I've been focused on just getting well. But for me, weight loss has been a struggle my entire life. When I was a kid, we I ate way too much. We ate bad foods. I was never taught what to eat well. Like we just ate. My mom is an amazing cook and she made unbelievable food constantly all the time. And we had unlimited cookies and pop everywhere. So for me, I've always, I, for me, I like weigh myself every day and work out multiple times a week with a personal trainer just to stay nor- like at a normal weight. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. And, and I just feel like it's just harder now. I mean, I'm oh, sure. I don't know. Like, I feel like I work out. I I don't eat that poorly. Um, but it's just, it's just not the way it was. And I heard about something called, um, 70 day hard. Did you, re- have you ever heard of this? Yeah. What, what is it's that? It's like this guy who got, um, really fed up, I guess, with his whole, situation and so he came up with his like the things that he had he was promising to do every day and i think it's like you know take a picture work out twice a day at least one of them has to be outside um get on a diet like whatever eating plan you want like just pick one and stick to it um i think like drink like two gallons of water or something like that and um read like 10 pages or a chapter in a book every day so i am it doesn't fit with the rest but But i think it was like kind of like getting into good habits so i'm trying to do a version we can call it 40 day sort of hard Ish. 40 days not yeah. soft. 40 days uh, yeah, <laughs> not, not soft, soft. <laughs> so my 40 days not soft um i am trying to meditate walk 10,000 steps a day get 40 zone minutes on my fitbit each day <laughs> eat three pieces of fruit eat at least one salad and read so for me if i am if i'm very tight and controlled in what i eat which i usually am i usually eat a lot of the same things all the Mm -hmm. time every day and it's super healthy i can i have no problem with my weight i have a lot of trouble when i'm outside of that zone and this is the hard time of the year for it like you pointed out asha because 
there's so many exceptions. It's like, I want to have a good time with my wife. You know, she wants to go out and eat. We're going to go out and eat. Right. Or if I'm going to, we have guests over, I'm not going to be like sitting there eating a salad, watching everybody else eat, you know, turkey or, uh, you know, turkey is actually pretty good for you, but, but eating, you know, whatever cookies and cakes and all this other stuff that we got for the holidays. And so it's just a challenge, um, you know, for my, for, for years, like that's just been, you know, part of the fun of the holidays has been all the Christmas cookies and all the stuff that my mom makes. And so it is just, it's just a tough time of year. I think in general, if we, if you can make it through flat, like without gaining five pounds, like I think it's like a major accomplishment. I think you should do 40 days, not soft with me. Okay. I'll go hard. I'll be 40, <laughs> do 40 days, days hard. hard. Um, I'll do 40 days really okay. hard. We are, we'll what, see. What, what, are, your, what are your goal markers? How about we try to lose? So this, no, this is, is your okay, daily, so this days. is your daily checklist. What's your daily checklist? Like what's, what are your things? They don't have to be mine. Like the, the habits that you're going to do each day. Well, I'll work out every okay. day that yeah. I can do. No problem. I eat salad every okay. day anyway. I could do that. Um, I'll eat. Should, how about for me? Like I don't eat processed carbs. For me, that is the biggest. That's the biggest source of weight yeah. gain. Like what? Like what do you eat? Like chips? Like, yeah, well, anything like that is bad. If you eat chips, bread, bagels, you know what I mean. So anything that's anything that's processed, pizza, fries. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, any, that's all tough. That, those are those are the the biggest weight gainers for me. Yeah. Um, that's and that's if I cheat on those, then it's like, yeah, the the weight goes up. I think mine's the wine. Yeah, I don't drink much. Yeah, for that reason, I just for weight reasons. Yeah, I've been better, but then the holidays kind of threw me off. For my wife, it's she's she could eat anything, but then now she's gotten like she's forty five, so as she's gotten older, it's harder. I sure I shouldn't say that was the tipping point for not. me. Tell yeah. her that the glory days are over. I'm telling you, I yeah. was like, I can do she's, whatever I want, and then I hit forty five, and it was all it was just over downhill. I wish I had forty five years of eating whatever I wanted without gaining weight. That would have been amazing. That would be amazing. That's like a Star Trek technology. <laughs> like if they could, if they if they could invent that, if you know, you know, Lieutenant Data could invent that uh, and and beam down, that would be fantastic mm. for me. I would love to eat pizza and ice cream and all that stuff. I know. I used to be able to, but now the muffin top is real. MSW Media. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.